Episode 67 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. All right. Hi, my name is Corey Frank. I'm a 737 captain for United Airlines and the author of Three Feet to the Left, A New Captain's Journey from Pursuit to Perspective. Today's episode is brought to you by AOPA's Pilot Protection Services. As disciplined and meticulous pilots, we are always striving to achieve that perfect flight from engine startup to shutdown. However, even the most experienced pilot can get distracted by a passenger or have a momentary bout of information overload. AOPA's Pilot Protection Services knows that your pilot and medical certificates mean everything to you. And that's why their trusted legal services plan attorneys and medical certification specialists are there to help protect you when things don't go as planned. It's available only to AOPA members and over 64,000 members already participate. So go check them out before your next flight at aopa.org backslash PPS. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I'm your host. Today is episode number 67, featuring Corey Frank. Corey is a United Airlines 737 captain, and he is the author of the book, Three Feet to the Left. In this podcast, we talk a lot about what his story was, how he became a pilot, the difficulties and struggles that he has faced. And we also touch a lot about leadership. We talk about the differences in being a captain and a leader rather than a dictator and someone who tells you what to do. There's a, a lot of good information in this podcast, and I really hope you're going to get a lot out of it. If you do enjoy this podcast, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. want to give a quick shout out to some of my Patreons that I have and have had for a while. Let's go ahead and give a shout out to Micah Maziar, Garrett Green, Kylie Giffen, and Matteo Caliguerri. I might have totally butchered your name and I do apologize, but thank you to the Patreons. Without you guys and girls, I would not be able to do what I'm doing today. Aviation, there is a meetup at Oshkosh. It is going to be at booth C3150 on July 26th at noon. We're going to be doing free stickers and a rapid fire section. If you're there, when my equipment's there, I will be doing a rapid fire section with the people that do come. And there will be about five, maybe 10 questions, just really fast, off the wall questions about Aviation. Aviation, I do not want to keep you any longer. Without any further ado, here's Corey Frank. Hey, Corey, what's going on? Thanks for joining the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. This is the thrill. No problem, man. No problem at all. Hey, I want to start out the same question I pretty much ask everyone. Why aviation? Why did you want to start your life and get involved in the aviation community? Yeah, well, like a lot of people, I I, uh, caught the aviation bug when I was a kid. Um, Specifically, it was when I was five years old. I was traveling with my grandmother to Florida, to Orlando, and uh, was just uh, I c- couldn't couldn't get enough of that view, you know, all, <laughs> yeah. looking down at all the farm fields and the twisting highways and mountains and all that. Um, but really where it supercharged was when I was in high school and my sister was a college student at the time and she was studying in London. Uh, so my family flew to London. It was my first trip overseas. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that if you uh, at the time, there was always a chance on foreign carriers that you might be able to get into the cockpit. So <laughs> when we got on board the plane, um, I, I asked the flight attendants if this might be possible because here I was trying to debate about whether I should be going into business or go into aviation. Um, and so the next morning, she comes back to my row at the, in the way back in the back of the plane and leads me forward to the flight deck, said the captain will see you now. <laughs> and so we walked all the way, you know, past all the rows of coach up the staircase to the upper deck of the 747-200. Oh, That's awesome. Um, 
pass business class and we get to the cockpit door. And I will never forget, like they opened the door and it was just this big, brilliant, bright light. And um, I was just like, wow, this is incredible because here you are, high school kid, you're looking at all these gauges and dials and switches and knobs and um, out across the the ocean with these small popcorn-shaped clouds uh, down along the surface and the sun's coming up over the North Atlantic. And it's like, this this is incredible. So I'd say I spent like about, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe with the crew chit-chatting and um, you know left the flight deck, went back to my seat, was just raving about this to my parents. <laughs> when they said, uh, when a little while later, the flight attendant returned, she said, hey, you're really lucky. And I said, oh, I, I know, I, I never could have done this on an American carrier. Um, and she said, no, no, you don't understand. She said, they've invited you back for the landing. Oh, whoa. And so they back up the hallway or up the, up the aisle, up the staircase, past first class <laughs> and back into the cockpit. But this time it was like much, much busier. They stepped me down into like this, the little jump seat, the flight engineer, he's pointing out all the different sites of London, you know, like there's the Thames and there's Big Ben and there's Wimbledon and out ahead of us is Heathrow. Um, and so, uh, you know, all the way down, we made this landing and I was like, this is incredible. This is what I want to do with my life. And from that moment on, the race was on yeah. and I, um, I was doing anything and everything I could to get to that position to become a major airline captain uh, <laughs> as fast as I could. So if you fast forward about 15 years, I uh, find myself as a 31-year-old, 737 captain for United. Dang, um, nice. And it you know, people had suggested like, okay, you got you better keep a journal because you're not going to believe the crap that happens to you as a new captain. And so for the first time in my life, I kept a journal <laughs> and uh, I couldn't believe the crap that happened to me. <laughs> they were right. Mostly, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, mostly of it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, because of what happened just inside the, fl uh, inside the flight deck, but it really created this amazing story that, uh, where I felt like I grew a tremendous amount as a leader and that I was shaped a lot as a man. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what really inspired the book three feet to the left. That's awesome. I like, <laughs> it's cool how you talked about how when you're a kid on this beautiful 747, 200 passing all the rows, going up the upper deck and going to the cockpit, watching the plane land. It's like, could you imagine if someone tried to do that today? It's like, you get arrested, you get thrown off, you're going <laughs> right, to jail. Maybe. It's a we felony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're diverting terrorist. You're squawking everything. Like, it's just like crazy how it's changed. It's just, it's so unfortunate it's because like you said, that was such a, left such an impression on you. And it's maybe not like during landing or takeoff or anything, but I wonder if there's any way if somehow we could get back to letting kids up there when we were just in cruise it's like there's not much going on in the cockpit when there's in cruise it's like i mean it might be different in the airline world but i'm sure you're tired of talking to the guy next to you that you've been stuck with the last three days anyway it could use a little bit of a change honestly that is a partly why i really wanted to write the book because you know flight attendants are no different like yeah they come up into the cockpit when we have bathroom breaks mm -hmm. and things like that but they don't get to see the real nuts and bolts of what goes on as a pilot no. and and so, you know, while I had this story that I really wanted to share about my leadership growth and the and the journey of me it, as a as a new leader in some challenging environments, I also wanted to really make it immersive for a business traveler or an aspiring pilot mm. or flight attendants or mechanics or the spouses of uh, or, or family members of people that um, you know we fly around because you're right, like people just don't 
until you've sat and you've seen a, a cat three approach to minimums, uh, or until you've dealt with thunderstorms or blizzards or whatever, like right. there's just no way from the back of the plane that you really have that bird's eye view. So I tried to write technically enough that it felt real, yeah. but not so technical that it, it flew over people's heads. And, you know, judging from some of the reviews and the reader emails that I've gotten, I've I feel like I'm at least in the ballpark. That's good. That's hard for pilots not to get too technical. You know, we just get so used to talking to each other and being like talking all the pilot jargon and acronyms and other people are sitting there like, what, <laughs> what are you Absolutely. talking about? So well, that's, I think that's it's a good cool. Feat. Like my, my editor that, that worked with me on the project, she was perfect because, um, she was very interested in the subject matter and knew virtually nothing about flying airplanes. Oh, cool. So it was a perfect fit because, you know, there were parts of the book that she would identify in uh, in the manuscript that we I, I would have to like dig back into, and because um, <laughs> she'd I, I would I would think oh well everybody knows this, but yeah. thankfully she was there to help so- round out the edges and say well what do you mean by this or what do you mean by that? Yeah. No one really knows the equation of lift. It's like what are you talking about? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. Well, I want to go a little bit farther back, like before the book, before you're a captain. Uh, I want to kind of go back to um, you're this kid in the 747. You get off the flight. You're in London. You fly back. Like, what was next? What was your process in, in building the resume that you now have? What was your job? What was kind of the flight school? How did you choose a flight school? What did your parents think when they're like, oh, my gosh, my son wants to spend thousands of dollars to go be an airline pilot? That's a, it's a, that's a really good question too. Uh, thankfully, my dad, um, in his family there, he's, my dad is a pilot now because I had the opportunity to actually teach him to fly, but oh, he had, so cool. his, uh, I believe it was our, our, his uncle had a, um, a, a small airplane. I can't remember exactly what kind it was. So he had, oh, we'd always had a little bit of aviation in our family, but nothing like professional by mm-hmm. any means. But I think they were very intrigued by it. Um, I think they were probably hesitant, as a lot of people are, to um, is it is is my interest going to change? I mean, I started out wanting to be a garbage man when I was a little kid, so then fifteen hundred different iterations between right. there and then. So, is it going to change again? But you know, you start. I, I went back and and tried to learn as much as I could about the industry. You know, there wasn't obviously nearly the internet presence that there is now, but you try to network and ask people and talk to people about it and figure out what, what do I need to do? Um, and ultimately, uh, it was funny cause I was, um, I was looking at the Naval Academy was one of the places that I thought, well, I could go to college, I could go in the military and become a pilot. Uh, but I actually have pretty bad vision, uh, correctable to 2020, but it's not like, uh, anywhere close to what the military standards were. So <laughs> right. I'm sitting, um, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania with, uh, the, the blue gold officer for the Academy. And he says to me, look, look, Corey, maybe they're going to change the rules and the laser surgeries will become acceptable or not, but maybe they won't. He said, so you need to determine if you want to be a pilot first and in the Navy second or in the Navy first and then, and a pilot second. (laughs) Um, and he said, if, if you want to be a pilot first, then, I might suggest that you look at the school called Embry-Riddle. Um, and so as it happened, he was a United Airlines 777 first officer at the time. Okay. And I had never heard of Embry-Riddle before that. But that <laughs> uh, that started, obviously, we went down to Florida, checked it out. And Ad basically... Paradise, right? Yeah, it was. It was, <laughs> it was it's great. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons about Embry-Riddle uh, versus other types of flight schools. Uh-huh. But it is a special thing 
to be on that campus where it is only aviation people, whether you're in business or human factors or uh, you name a, a, a major on that campus, like everybody likes aviation. And some people would say that's a con, but honestly, like, I feel like there's a, I don't know if you've ever happened to, uh, go there at all, but I feel like it's a pretty special place when you, when you are amongst all those people. But. Yeah. I've, I've never been there before. And I mean, honestly, the only thing I know is just kind of like the jokes that come out about Embry Riddle. It's like, Oh, they, they charge them like $200,000 to get their pilot license and all that other stuff. Uh, I, I don't like when people kind of give other people crap about how much money they spend on college, like different, like, things work different for different people. You know, it's like one college works better for some people four year college does. Some people don't go to four year college. Like we can all get to the same place and have different experiences. It doesn't matter if I spent 200 grand, if I spent 10 grand or which is impossible. You know what I mean? It's like, don't hate on someone for going to Embry Riddle because that was their best option that they had the opportunity to go to, you know? Right. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And, you know, maybe in retrospect, maybe I should have looked at some of the other schools that are out there to have like a more traditional college experience. But then again, for me, like it worked very well. Yeah. But I have to tell you this one story because you're going to get a <laughs> kick out of it. Sweet. So I, I, I decide I'm going to go to, I'm going to apply to Embry-Riddle and I go to my favorite high school teacher at the time and I say, you know, so, and he and I had been talking for quite, quite some time about aviation and this and that, and he'd always been kind of cold about it. So I, I went to him and said, okay, I've made my decision. I'm going to go to Ember Riddle or I'd like to, I'd like to apply. I said, would you write a letter of recommendation for me? And he stands up and he's, he, uh, waddles, uh, kind of walks over to me and, uh, he's standing like right over top of me. And he says, uh, so, so you're really going to do this, huh? And I said, yeah, I said, this is what I, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm committed. And he said to me, well, you darn well better make it or you're going to be washing dishes the rest of your life. Oh, shoot. Thanks and for the I vote never of confidence. Saw that. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, you could just feel the wind just get sucked out of my lung, uh, uh, my air. Like this was a man that I deeply respected and he was telling me, basically, I felt like he was telling me that I was throwing my potential away by pursuing aviation. Now, come to find out years later that a family member of his had uh, worked for uh, one of the major airlines um, and had been furloughed a number mm-hmm. of times and had had this terrible career. And that, that was the viewpoint that he was coming at it. Um, but I didn't have that. And I kept saying to him like, you know, things like, but you don't understand. I'll work harder. I'll do whatever it takes. I, I can do this. And he's like, well, you, you can't beat a seniority list. <laughs> and there is an awful lot of truth in that, that the 17 or 18 year old me at the time, uh, probably should have, you know, listened to, but then, you know, there's as, as you and I will get into, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have experienced, like when you have that passion, like you've got to go for it, you've got to give it a shot because one day you're going to be sitting there, uh, you're going to be 67 years old and you're going to be wondering what could have been, yeah. what may have happened. When your buddy's so, retiring from United, flying a triple seven all over the world, and you're washing dishes like that guy said you'd yeah, be doing, exactly. it's like, dang, I should have tried. And, but I get what he means, though, because uh, I mean, my first job after Embry Riddle was flight instructing at a, a, a place um, called Virginia Aviation, and in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I was making fourteen thousand dollars a year that that year. And so there were many days when I was, you know, eating my t- canned tuna and uh, trying trying to pinch pennies wherever I could, like where I thought about him and I, I thought he's probably laughing at me right now, (laughs) you know, but so that comes back to internal drive and like, are you going to make it happen? Are you, 
Are you going to find a way? Maybe the path doesn't lead exactly where you think it's going to lead, but uh, if you're if you're in it for the right reasons, and Lord knows, as you and I were talking about a little bit before the show, like uh, money is not the reason no. to get into this field. But if you're in it for the right reasons, there's just there's huge potential, as as your show has highlighted in numerous ways. Absolutely, you know, and it's I like how you brought up the fact that you were a flight instructor, not making very much money, and it's it's this industry is so much delayed gratification. It's like you have to put in so much work, and now flight instructors get paid better, and some low time jobs are paying better. But even what five six years ago, when I was building my time, it's like they weren't getting paid well. People were telling actively telling me not to become a pilot because of how bad it was. It's kind of like what you were going through. It's like you'll never have a good career. It's like they there are first officers that are sleeping on benches shaving in airports like you are not going to enjoy it and I think it's just I knew I wanted to be a pilot I knew it's something that I loved and I just had to give it a chance and thankfully the timing for me when I was training then was the best time to get into aviation it's like now first officers are making more money than they ever have before flight instructors are making more money than ever they have somewhat of a very structured way to find yourself into a major airline and they have kind of this roadmap for you to follow now and it's just it's a great time to get into aviation so it's kind of like you if you listen to him you would have walked away from what would have been probably one of the best times to get into aviation. And you sort of wonder, like my sister, she had a friend uh, that she met in college who um, kind of went into corporate uh, law. And But he was always fascinated. I know like when I would meet him and I, I was just accumulating my ratings and stuff at the mm-hmm. time. But it, we would all, he was always very interested in what I was doing, what my <laughs> career was doing this. And I, the last that I heard, uh, I think he left his position. He had gone ultimately to like work for one of the airlines. I believe it was Delta as a, as an attorney. And then he left that to get his licenses and no he's pursuing his dream. So even if, even if I had gone that path, you know, you, you never know what would have happened. Maybe I would have found a way back to aviation you know, maybe it would have been subtle nudges over time and the path would have looked a lot different, <laughs> but maybe that's not a bad thing either. So. Yeah. You probably would have found yourself in an airplane at some point in your life for sure. At least as a private pilot. Yeah. For sure. At least as a private pilot. <laughs> what was your training like when you're flying? Did you get any training done before you went to Embry-Riddle or was that when you started all your training? I actually knocked out my private and my instrument rating before I matriculated okay. to Embry-Riddle. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, now what, how much of that they accept or don't accept. Um, but that was a great deal for me. It put me, uh, one step ahead right from the beginning. And I did my commercial license while I was, uh, a freshman. And then they started a program, um, that, that summer where it was, I think they call it the fast track flight instructor program. So I actually knocked out my CFI and double I by staying the summer that, uh, between my freshman and sophomore years there. And what was really cool was at the end of that time, I had the opportunity to interview for um, a flight instructor position. Like they, they were losing at the time, they were losing so many people uh, to the regionals that I think they started the program partially as a feeder yeah. for the uh, instruction uh, or to generate, to get instructors for Amber Riddle. And so it worked out great for me because then the next couple of years that I was there, I was able to work as a part-time flight instructor. What year was this when, when all this was going on? So that was 2001 okay. actually. Oh, so that was the <laughs> that was right before everything got bad then, right? It I think I got I would have to go back and check, but I believe I started working for Embry Riddle as a part time flight instructor in August of two thousand one and then September, you know, obviously was 
the day that changed aviation forever. <laughs> yeah. There's been a couple other people that I've talked to and they were like, yeah, in August I got hired to this job of <laughs> 2001. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> here comes the other part of the story. So Right, what, exactly. What all, what, so from your perspective, what changed for you when September 11th happened? Did any, did you lose your flight instructor job at all? It was like kind of what happened with you? Believe it or not, I did not. You know, Embry-Riddle, all of a sudden they weren't hiring as many uh, or they, they stopped hiring new to my to my recollection at least they stopped hiring flight instructors i believe there may have even been a small a furlough of flight instructors for that were full time mm-hmm. uh, but for whatever reason the the part time student instructors like myself we kept flying i kept my students and and we kept flying um but you know as it was an it, it, that's that is an odd that was a difficult period of time <laughs> uh, and for everyone you know, having flown with many, many pilots now that were actually flying on yeah. September 11th, it's, and to hear their stories about how drastically their careers changed, um, it, it's it's just it, it's, it's hard to imagine yeah, a day like that ever affecting the airlines the same way again. Uh, my dad's a U.S. Airways right. pilot, or my dad's an American pilot, flew Piedmont, U.S. Air, U.S. Airways, kind of went up that whole chain. And he was at LaGuardia getting ready to take off when he saw the second plane hit. He was like, he has a, oh a, an incredible story about the whole, the whole event that one day, hopefully I'll be able to tell. But yeah, he saw it hit. He, um, he rented a truck because he knew that he wasn't going to be able to fly home. He could kind of feel like everything, what was going to happen. So he rented one of the last trucks and he drove, drove his whole crew home and then drove home after that. He got all his crew home and he had the one of the only cell phones that worked. Apparently AT&T was one of the only cell phone coverages that worked in New York during that time. So he was able to call us and tell us where he was and what was going on. But yeah, it changed everything. I mean, he was... I think he was a relatively new captain at that point and or maybe he, I don't I need to ask I should know this better but <laughs> sorry dad anyways he was <laughs> I think he was flying for Metrojet do you remember that when US Airways kind of started yeah. their own yeah so I think he was doing some of that I think they could go captain there and fly first officer fly captain for US Air I don't know the whole kind of logistics of it but he was doing that and then he saw it hit he was coming back and I think it was within a week, like they announced they're going to do like 50 or 60% pay cuts because the airlines knew what was happening. They're like, crap, we're screwed. We need to save money as much as possible. And yeah, he went from making really good money to <laughs> making some pretty crappy money doing the same exact job. And that leaves some pretty bitter feelings for all the pilots that were there. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And but thankfully, we have recovered and airlines. But are look doing, how long it took. Wow. And even, you know, and I, the, a lot of the people that I've flown with here at United, um, you know, they got furloughed after September 11th and mm-hmm. then they finally get recalled. Um, and then you had the, the financial <laughs> issues in 2008 that hit. Just and, to get furloughed again. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and it wasn't just United, obviously. Uh, it was all the airlines that had kind of went through that mm-hmm. really tough period. And, it really lays down what my teacher was was talking about in many ways that your your number is either up or it's not in yeah. this business. And I know people, uh, a colleague that I went to college with, um, when when at the time Continental Airlines uh, furloughed um, in 2008 timeframe, he he ended up being the very last guy. I call him the plug. I don't know if that's what everybody <laughs> calls him or not, but. But he, he was the plug. He was the very last pilot on the seniority list. Oh uh, and it's like if you had been one class difference or one number different, perhaps. Your whole life is different. It's all different. All different. That's crazy. And that's the really tough part with aviation, I feel like, is that you can do so much 
but at, at some point you you are along for the ride. Yeah. I mean, I, just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with um, a friend of mine that is not in aviation whatsoever, and he was like, you know, would you ever think about you know going to work for Delta or somebody else? And it's like, no, man, I'm I'm st- I'm here. I'm yeah. at United for the long haul. Like, yeah, it's like if I go to Delta, I got to make like seventy grand, and I, they don't pay for hotels and you do training, so I'm yeah. not paying that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. You get a seniority number and you just start praying like, please don't let anything bad happen until I am over the hump. (laughs) And then when we have our retirement parties, we can all figure out uh, whether we played our cards correctly. or Yeah, I know. And there is no correct path in aviation. It's like you can't predict what's going to happen right now. It looks like it's the best thing that that it's the best time of aviation, but we don't know what's coming next. We don't know how close we are to the next kind of mishap or misstep or hiccup in the economy or in the world or whatever. So it's like just, just enjoy this time while we have it because as you know and as hopefully what the younger generation knows too is that this is not always going to happen something else will pop up and aviation has gone through these cycles many 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 times so something's definitely on on the the forefront and will happen eventually but just like you said just get that senior number and just really hope that (laughs) that's where you are because it's really annoying like you said you can be the best pilot in the world and it doesn't matter. All these other people have failed training. They failed check rides. They failed all this. And they still, just because they got there or they were born two days before you were, they'll have a better seniority number. You know, it's like nothing you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. And imagine like if you had been offered a, a position with Pan Am, like who wouldn't want to take that job? Yeah. Like that was the, the airline to be with. And now it's not around. I mean, yeah. you just have, you, you have no idea. Um, you hope and pray that these companies will will keep operating it i mean lord look at the look at the regional landscape and how much that has changed Mm -hmm. in the past five to ten years like half the companies weren't even around yeah that's crazy (laughs) all right there were in some instances there were more companies that aren't even here you know it's like you had the commerce you had all the other smaller carriers that have either been absorbed by republic or one of the bigger 121 regional carriers it's crazy. Right, well, you have no like idea. I was a I was an Atlantic Coast Airlines intern yeah. uh, when I was in college, and I joke, you know, they became uh, Independence Air and then went out of business. And I joke sometimes that I'm still waiting on the guaranteed interview call uh, from ACA. <laughs> Any day now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Any it's day. Coming. I know. It. I know it. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy industry that we are in and that we all call our own, and it's it's tough. That's why making a decision to to leave. Say, if you're at a, I mean, some people like regional, some people stay there, but some people like the seniority number and they don't want to move to a major. I've talked to some people that enjoy where they are and it's like, well, I mean, if you're happy, why move? But at the same point, it's like you can get to a major airline. You got to try, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, uh, so last time we talked about you were a flight instructor, September 11th just happened. And what was kind of, how long were you a flight instructor before you moved on to your next job? You said you're an intern waiting for the the call from, was it Atlantic Coast Airways? Yeah, exactly. So I, I was I worked for Ember Riddle. I mm-hmm. graduated early there because I had stayed summers and and things. I had, and so then I did Atlantic Coast Airlines and uh, the Continental Airlines internship. Um, and at the end of that time, which was uh, the end of two thousand three, um, I went to work for uh, Virginia Aviation, which was mostly flight instruction, charter mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. But it was really cool. I mean, like I get to do an aircraft delivery flight from. Lynchburg, uh, all the way down to Cornavaca, Mexico, which was outside of Mexico City, which I still look at as one of the most interesting experiences I've I've ever had. Um, <laughs> is it a good story or is it a bad? <laughs> like, well, it, did the plane try to kill from, you? No, it was totally fine. Like we flew uh, to 
we, we flew down to, La, well, I, I flew down to Laredo, Texas, and I met uh, an aircraft broker and <laughs> um, the new owner. And so the next morning, it, it was just, in, it was the first time I'd ever re- flown really internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, we filed a flight plan, and all we did was like, you know, five-minute flight over to Nuevo Laredo, uh, Mexico. So we get there, and now we're dealing with like importation of the airplane. And it took forever, um, and I didn't know what was going on or uh, what, but it took all day basically to get the right paperwork um, to to import, actually import this airplane. So finally, that gets approved at the airport, and they say you have to take this down to the border. So you go to the border, and you wait in these long lines. And um, the, I will never forget this, like, Mexican immigration officer uh, or customs officer that was like, well, where's the cargo? And we're like, it's an airplane. It's <laughs> at the airport. And he's like, I don't see the cargo denied. And I'm, you know, maybe he was looking for his bribe or whatever, but yeah. um, we, we end up waiting in more lines and finally get to the point where uh, you can't fly single engine airplanes in Mexico at night, at least, to my knowledge, it's probably the same way, but at least you at the time. You can now, unfortunately. I've done it all the time. It's awful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, continue, continue. So at the time, at least, you, you, you couldn't do that. And the owner the, that was there, the new owner, starts freaking out because he's, uh, he's starting to worry about will the airplane be there in the morning um, because it was a Turbo 206. It was like great for somewhat nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember we bought like, tie down chains and stuff went back to the airport. And then he said, uh, he said, you know, well, we've, we've got to go get a hotel. And I'm like, Oh, we can stay here in Nuevo Laredo. And he's like, no, we're going back, <laughs> going to, back Texas. to Laredo. Um, and that really was impactful. Like, here's a native Mexican that is saying like, we're not staying in Nuevo Laredo. And I'll never forget, like w- w- drove past like this shanty town where, there was a jumper cable hooked up to a power line. And on the other end of the jumper cable were little tiny wires just running all over the place through this quasi neighborhood where people were stealing the electricity. And so, so as a, I'm so green behind the ears, you know, at this point, like I'd never been around the world or seen uh, places other than really just in the United States. It was that whole trip was just so eye opening in just so many ways. Um, I look at that as probably one of my favorite experiences looking back um, that I've ever had as a, as a pilot. Oh man, you brought up Laredo and my like, so I flew single pilot freight and a Pilatus and a caravan. And that's what I did to build most of my time after aerial survey and a 206, which you, the turbo 206 in Mexico in Laredo. So you like meshed both of my worlds together. (laughs) And I just started like having really like cold sweats. Like (laughs) it's back. No, but yeah, I spent so much time in Laredo and kind of the, the outlier cities in Mexico that we bring, we bring freight to, but it's just funny of you talking about Laredo and Nuevo Laredo and it's like Laredo's not that much better than what was probably across the border either because half of it is just the people coming from Nuevo Laredo coming to Laredo to come shop so I mean it's still there so you weren't out of the the woods by any aspect there either but it's really funny to hear someone else talk about landing Laredo it's a it's a very special place if you ever get the chance to go there and it's not terrible there's nothing really too bad about it but it's just definitely interesting yeah I mean not to get on on, onto this topic necessarily but every time I go uh internationally whether it's uh, whether it's there to Mexico or other um, places that are even less desirable than that necessarily. <laughs> um, 
I am just so thankful that I live in America, that I come home and I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that we have here. You know, like, uh, when I flew a 757 for Continental, I went to, uh, Berlin a number of times. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to go to Berlin or not, not yet, uh, no. but it's such a cool city. And there's a museum there uh, that's something along the lines of the museum of the wall at checkpoint Charlie. And it's just dedicated to all the ways, the creative ways that people crossed the wall, the Berlin wall. It oh, cool. really drove home. Like they didn't build the wall to keep the Westerners out. They built the wall to keep the Easterners in. Yeah. So here are all these people trying to come to freedom the same thing with whether it's a Cuban that gets on a raft or a, a Mexican or a Central American who hikes through the desert at the chance to get to the United States and, and find freedom and opportunity here. And I wish more Americans could see the things that we see as, <laughs> as pilots because it really drives home just how fortunate we are to yeah, live in America. For sure. I 100% agree. We are very fortunate to, to live the life that we do and very fortunate to have the opportunities that we have. So I would agree. We get with my job, we get to fly to a bunch of other countries too. And it's, it's very humbling and it's very kind of eye opening. Like you said, it's like, is that fuel truck really going to come fuel me? It's like, it looks like it has so many holes and rust in it, <laughs> but it works. So hey, it works. <laughs> what was, uh, what was next after you kind of were doing your, your ferry career where you're ferrying turbo two of sixes across the border? Yeah, well, what did you do next? Which was really a small piece of, of what I was doing there at Virginia aviation. But then uh, I, I got hired with. American Eagle Airlines, because I know you ask this question a lot. I um, I did look up and I had just under 1,300 hours at that point. Oh, nice. Because um, that was when you could get hired pretty much any time for a regional, right? Or you yeah. could, like they didn't have a limit, but still there was pretty high time. Yeah, like I, I'm trying to think that, I'm trying to think what was the average back then, but uh, I know I had more than the minimums for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, It it was a little more competitive than, or to at least get a phone call, I think you needed a little more. Ex- well, I guess that's not true though, because they have the minimums now, yeah. the higher minimums. So I think it's I take it, that back. Yeah, I think it's changed a little bit. I think obviously the higher minimums, so they have more of a pool for now until they run out of them of uh, guys with fifteen hundred or twelve hundred or a thousand hours, depending on how you did your training. Yeah, but that was great. So I, was, I flew a Saab three forty uh, for Amer- uh, American Eagle out of Dallas for the mighty Saab. How was that? How was flying the Saab? I love the Saab. Really? I, I love the Saab. <laughs> There's like, and probably because it's, it was my first airliner. So yeah, holds a special a heart, bit of in your heart for it. Right. <laughs> but, and yeah. I remember just sweating my rear end off in that thing because there was no APU and you get in the summertime and you just get beat up by the weather and you're doing five or six legs a day. And I could have cared less, uh, because I was an airline pilot and that was, it was great. It was great. And, but I still have really fond memories of going to places like Waco and college station, um, down in Texas. And, you know, I didn't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but they were fun places to, to see and uh, <laughs> right. always fun pl- uh, things to do. So yeah. I was there, I flew this off for like, uh, about a year and a half and then transitioned to the ERJ, uh, 145, um, and flew that for a very short period of time. And then I got hired by Continental Airlines in 2006. What was it like making the jump from a turboprop to a jet for you? Because I know some people can struggle with it. It's, things happen a little bit faster. You know, you got the jet engines on there, not the, the propellers anymore. <laughs> but I felt like 
I only flew a single engine turboprop and I felt like the turboprop really set me up to succeed in a jet world just because things do happen faster. You're not being hired from a 172. You know, like you have to plan the arrivals. You got to plan approach speed. You got to, you got to figure out that you got to fly fast so you don't slow down the 737 behind you. That's coming right up your butt. <laughs> it's like, well, how did, and, how did that help you out? And the Saab, uh, I don't know about the Pilatus, but the, the Saab, we would fly around at 250 knots all the time for cruise. Yeah. So like below 10,000, I think you're right that it did set me up very well. I do laugh though, because it was all VOR to VOR. Oh, there were no, uh, there was no GPS that we had. So, uh, I mean, I had all of the VORs and the radials and the distances, <laughs> all that frequencies, everything was memorized uh, across Texas, Oklahoma, and Jeez. Louisiana at the time. Kids listening now are like, what's a VOR? Right? What's he talking but about? I did an NDB. <laughs> I remember having to do NDB. Uh, approaches, I believe so, at least in the simulator for the Saab. So, and, and nobody, nobody does that anymore. No, you poor soul. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a big jump. Uh, I, I do remember it being a big jump, but it was also really exciting because now, you know, you're flying so much further away and you started to feel like you were a real airline pilot. Right. And you're doing two or three hour legs sometimes, uh, in the ERJ as opposed to, you know, 30 minutes to Waco. That's an interesting kind of um, thought process that you brought up. Like when you finally come to the realization that you are a real airline pilot, maybe not realization, but you finally feel like you're a real airline pilot or just a real pilot in general. Because even now flying the latitude, it's like I still don't necessarily think of myself as a real pilot just because like I feel like you have to have uh, some kind of like beard or not beard, but some kind of mustache wearing some big glasses and you have to fly a seven tri- or a triple seven. <laughs> you have to have Vietnam horror stories and all that stuff to be considered a real pilot. So when for you, would you say that you were like, man, I'm a real pilot? Was it relatively younger or was it kind of when you got to United and you're 737 captain? You know, I think that the real, when it really hit home for me was my, uh, my first international trip with, with, uh, Continental, yeah, because it was. I got hired right onto the 757, 767. Dang. So I did uh, two um, two trips down and back to uh, Florida on IOE, and then the end of my IOE was the 76400 to Rome, Italy. <laughs> and good luck, that enjoy, was, see ya. <laughs> I mean, I rem- I still remember looking, walk, doing the walk around, uh, and the tires coming up to the middle of my chest, and. <laughs> Uh, standing and looking at these engines and the tail is just towering above us. Um, and then, you know, you're sitting there on the runway and they tell you to, uh, you're clear for takeoff and you're thinking this is a, uh, this airplane, I think it maxed out uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, like 450,000 oh pounds. And I'm like, this is, in, this is insane. This is crazy. Yeah. Sounds like you had that. We're not in Kansas anymore feeling when you're looking at the tires that were almost taller than you. <laughs> like, Oh <Yeah>. boy. <laughs> well, and especially then once you, you know, you cross the ocean, you're watching the sunrise, uh, you start hearing like these, these accents are not American accents no, anymore. It's like, okay, it's the Scottish and then it's the French. And then it's uh, now we're talking to the Italians and you get out of the crew van in Rome and you're looking around going, Oh my God, I'm in Rome, yeah. Italy, and they paid me to get here. Go home, call your wife. Your wife's like, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. What was, um, what was it like getting that major airline invite? Cause you know, that's kind of like the pinnacle of everyone's careers go to a major airline. What was kind of, how excited were you when you finally got the call that you got the job? I was talking with one guy who flies for American now and he was telling me he got the call when he was driving on a highway in Charlotte and he's like, man, I almost wrecked like a hundred cars. There's almost a hundred call pi- car pilot because I was so excited and wasn't paying attention. What, did you have the same feeling when you got that call? 
I totally did. And the funny part, the best part is that, so I, I was, I'd started dating my um, now wife. Uh, I'd met her in, in, I think it was uh, February, late January, early February of um, 2006. And uh, so I had gone to, um, I'd got flown out to Pensacola. She was living in Pensacola, Florida at the time. And so I flew over to uh, meet up with her for the first time uh, after we had met at this conference and so I'm standing in the airport waiting for her to get there and I get the call. <laughs> and so now I'm like stoked, completely stoked <laughs> that I'm going to like go interview with a major carrier. I get in her little Ford Escort at the time <laughs> and I'm like, it's great to see you. I have to make some phone calls. And <laughs> I don't know how she didn't just kick me to the curb because right. I think I was on the phone for a while that day. Um, calling my parents and just telling people like, well, Oh my God, I just got oh, the call. No. Continental she was smart. She heard, she was hearing the conversation. She was like, Oh, I'm not driving this Ford escort escort for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> so she was smart. She knew what she was getting into. <laughs> right. But she's a smart cookie. That's yeah, for sure. That's good. That's what I did. I had to marry a much smarter person than myself <laughs> for our kids sake back in the, right. <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. But that's so cool. I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine getting that call from a major airline and just how excited. Cause that's like your, it's a culmination of your life work. It's like that goes back to when you were talking with your teacher, the person you really respected. And that was kind of what he was talking about. It's like, I mean, if you make it to major airline, you know, it's like not everyone can make it, you know, and you did it. You got to go to the major airline. So that's really cool. But then you get the, you, you, you go to the interview and you're sitting there at the table and you're looking around and you see the aircraft model, at least for me, I don't know how it is today, but like you, you see the aircraft models and you see the, the signage on the walls and the, the advertisements and all of this. And you're like, Oh my God, I can't screw this up. Like, how do I not screw this up? That's the whole entire goal. Yeah. It's like my um, girlfriend already bought a new car. She has to get yeah. the escort back. <laughs> I'm yeah. in over my head. <laughs> yeah. I can't do this. Did you find yourself comparing yourself to other people? Like, man, maybe I'm not good enough to do this. Or were you kind of full of confidence and ready to go? Well, I knew when I was in that interview that I, I said to them at one point towards the end, they said, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add? And I looked, I'm always trying to turn negatives into positives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that one of the biggest downsides for me was that I had never been a captain. And, uh, you know, I, relatively speaking, I had pretty low time. I had about 2,500 hours, a little more than 2,500 hours when I got hired. Dang. And so I said to them, I looked around and I, I, um, I said, look, you, if, when I look around this, this table, uh, I forget the, the gentleman's names now, but, you know, at the time, the first name was the largest thing on the Continental Airlines badge. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can see your name is Tom and your name is such and such. And I said, to me, that's a really big piece that speaks to the culture of Continental Airlines. I said, if all you want is people with hours in your logbook, you wouldn't have me here today. But I think you want people that can fit into that culture, that understand what the airline is all about. Um, and, you know, who knows if they liked that answer or not. <laughs> but to me, I felt like it was to say, like, I'm here for the long haul. Right. And, and I know that I've flown with pilots um, at United that have gotten hired and they're just first officers at uh, the regional. They never upgraded um, prior to this. So it is still possible, like, to be in that situation. Was I fortunate? Was I lucky? Sure. Um, I had some really good good fortune with that. I think it helped a lot that I had done the internships. Uh, so they kind of knew me ahead of time. Uh, but all of these companies, whether it's Delta, United, Southwest, any of the airlines, they want to know that 
you're going to be a good employee that you're going to be a good cultural fit. Absolutely. So it, the, the more that, you know, you as a, as a aspiring pilot can, can do to make sure that the airline knows that you understand what the company is about and that you as a tool will help them further their mission. I exactly. think that's really, and they important. want to make sure that your, their cap, your captain's not going to want to kill you after being stuck with you for five days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you pass that, you should be all right. <laughs> or 14 hours on the way to Hong Kong. Oh, or something. Yeah. Don't uh, that'd be bad. <laughs> I don't know if I told, I think I've told the story of the podcast, but I was flying single pilot freight and we had an SIC program for the, Plotus PC 12 in the caravan and we're in the Plotus and we, I was flying with this one guy. We had, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Maybe he does, but sorry if he does. Uh, we were fine. We flew like a couple long five hour legs each for about three or four days in a row. And I mean, we, we got along. It's just that we didn't have, like he just, anno- something about him was just kind of annoying to me. And it might have been me. It might have been the fact that I was ready to move on to my next job and I was just tired of stuff, but he like kept singing. And so I was like, dude, please stop singing. And he didn't stop. And so on the old garments, you can probably still do it on in the airlines too, but there was a mute button and I muted yeah, him for like right. five hours. <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. It's like, I'll just, I'm single pilot now. I muted him and cause he didn't have the time to even really like fly the airplane. He was just there to answer radio calls. So I was like, oh, I'm going to mute him. <laughs> so I muted him all the way back up to Buffalo from Laredo. <laughs> all sorts, man. All yeah, sorts it's like, well, you got to do that. It's like, that was the best thing for safety. It's like, I'm gonna, literally going to kill you unless we you stop talking. <laughs> and he just didn't really understand how serious I was when I was saying that. So I had to mute him. <laughs> but hey, we're here to talk about it. <laughs> what was, uh, all right, so you got hired by a Continental. Uh, did the merger happen before your captain or after your captain? It happened, uh, well, uh, it happened in 2010, okay. and I upgraded in 2013. Okay, so you so, upgraded as United Captain. That's correct. Did you notice yeah. any differences between the kind of the, the different worlds of United and Continental? Because I've, I've known the past from the people I've talked to, it might not have been the best merger in the world, like the best for company culture, but would you say that was the, uh, about true? Well, I think that's part of what made my experience as a captain very interesting mm-hmm. um in many ways because they continental had after the merger um continental opened well united oh, i should say opened uh pilot domiciles for continental sp- only pilots in the united hubs and they opened united only uh pilot domiciles in the continental hubs mm-hmm. so having um loved i love chicago my <laughs> my wife was in between jobs at the time and so we said what the heck let's go let's do it so we moved out and we, I actually was a first officer in Chicago first, but because I ended up upgrading in Chicago in that, that time frame, So the, there, it was, it, it was like, you know, there were black uniforms and there were blue uniforms. <laughs> and, um, it was very obvious in essence, which quote unquote team a pilot played for at the yeah. time. Um, and there was some definite tension. And part of what I get into with the book a lot is that, a, a huge subset of the pilots uh, on the 737 were recalled furloughed United pilots. Okay. Um, and so they were technically on the continental side of the company, but they were wearing, uh, they, they were, they still were United pilots, you know, at heart. And as you know, we all were kind of transitioning to being the new United, mm-hmm. but um, you know, there were people that um, they, they integrated, most of those people were recalled onto the continental side of, of the company. So, Interesting. so here you have people that we were on the front lines of integrating these two corporate cultures and whether could it have been, 
you know, done more smoothly, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, I guess. But then the, the bottom line is that all of us, people in general, are pack animals, I think. And so, um, it, it, whether you were a legacy United pilot or a legacy continental pilot for both subsets to embrace that, Hey, we're actually a new company and, or, or, or a, a company that is coming together and let's, you know, put the past behind us. Like that is really tough to do. Yeah. Um, so integrating that, especially as a, uh, at the time I was the youngest captain at, at, at United, um, which is purely a function of luck and timing. Exactly. Uh, but <laughs> congratulations either way though. But right. Yeah, you're exactly. right. At least you know that I you're not like the one lot guy. Of lottery ticket that day. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, so, <laughs> it, you know, it was, it, that was good and it was exciting and everything. But then when the reality was here, I am as a new leader and you've got to find a way to work with people that have had a drastically different airline career. I mean, exactly. where mine was very, not smooth sailing all the way, but pretty much, you know, a textbook. And yet, and here you have these other people that are older than you that have had different life experiences. And at the end of the day, as a leader, as a captain, you have to bring these people together. You have to find a way to operate these flights safely, to, to build bridges, not walls. And, um, that was an incredibly challenging, uh, task, Mm -hmm. uh, for me as a new captain. I bet. And kind of talk a little bit about, about becoming a new captain and kind of to building that, like being the, the quote unquote youngest captain in United's history. It's like, well, no, no, they... I'm going to stop you there. It wasn't, it definitely was not the youngest in history. It oh, just sorry. was at, at the time. At so, the time. What, yeah. um, what was kind of the feedback? Cause you were probably flying with older first officers that thought maybe they should be a captain. You know, they kind of were, it's like the, the teacher said, it's like they, fell by the seniority list and they were just a couple numbers below you where there's a, was there a lot of kind of resentment by the people you're flying with or did they think it was pretty cool? I think it depended on, on the particular trip. Yeah. Uh, but the interpersonal issues were definitely one of the biggest challenges. You know, the average age of the first officers I flew with was 11 and a half years older than me. <laughs> um, the oldest one was I think 56. <laughs> so that, uh, was a what a twenty five year difference? Yeah, um, Good luck. You, so you you layer that <laughs> with the merger tensions, and then needing to keep the big picture, needing to foster you know these high functioning teams, and and yet still maintaining control because it's, at the end of the day you're still the captain, mm-hmm. you're still ultimately responsible for this jet, the passengers, all of that, and so um, ultimately I decided that I needed to, I really needed to find a way to engage their experience because um, if I could these people had a way more, a lot of them had way more experience and flight time and everything than, than I did. They, they had uh, flown all over the world. They, they brought a lot to the table. It would be immature of myself and irresponsible of myself if I didn't do my best to try to uh, engage that and empower them to make the decisions, you know, cause as I like to say, I do uh, some public speaking as well and where I work with corporations and organizations and things. And I oftentimes say, you know, you've got to remember as a leader, as a captain, I'm responsible for every decision, but that doesn't mean that I have to make every decision. Right. Uh, and that's a, there's a, there's a big difference between the two. Uh, and so finding subtle ways, and that's a lot of what I talk about uh, in my keynotes is, is, teaching leaders how to how to manage in these types of environments as as a new leader and um in a way that empowers and and hopefully maximizes your team without 
building up any of those barriers. Yeah, and uh, there's a huge difference between leadership and dictatorship, and not all captains <laughs> understand that. Too. It's like there's a like like you said, you got to empower the people around you to use the training that they have had to succeed and make the right choice. You still have the overall authority to come in and step in when they fail and make the wrong choice, but you, it is your job to see them succeed and let like, a captain. I mean, I'm obviously I'm a first officer, so I can't really speak out, but this is in my mind. A captain has to have some trust in the person next to him to make the right decision. And you kind of just like keep going along. And when he finally doesn't make the right decision, cause he doesn't have all the experience you have, that's when you come in and you teach him and show him what the right way is and why, and kind of have a little conversation about that and build him up rather than just be a dictator and just do everything on your own and be like, this is my choice. We do this and not kind of have that conversation around it. hundred percent. I, I say that there's positional authority and there's relational authority. So the positional authority is easy to see. It's four stripes. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's the star of the captain on your wings. It's, it's the uh, scrambled eggs on, on the brim of your cap. Relational <laughs> authority is more powerful though. Yeah. And you can always revert to positional authority. And there are times when you need to, and it's when a situation kind of comes up and a decision needs to be made, you can just step in and say, boom, this is what we're doing. But there's consequences to that. There's any time that a leader does anything, there's consequences to their t- them taking action. And as I, one of the, the key takeaways in my keynote that I like to do is that consequences combine because, and you have to be cognizant of that. If you're not thinking about what you say or don't say, what you do, what you don't do positively or negatively, it all combines. Nothing's in isolation. And even if you're making a decision on a pre-flight issue, that could affect you when uh, when things go sideways uh, during an approach or a mm-hmm. landing and, and you need to you're you're being tasked and you you really need to have this highly functioning team. If you haven't laid the groundwork early on, how are you how can you possibly expect <laughs> exactly you don't have that that relationship yeah i know exactly what you mean and some people are, it's a skill it's a it's a skill and it's a learned skill too so there is hope for people that don't have that skill now but it's definitely there are some more natural leaders than others and some people are better at it it doesn't mean that you're a bad pilot or they're a bad pilot it's just something that you might have to work on and it's it's one of those things that you just need to accept and it also goes the same way with the first officer it's like just because you've been a first officer for a while or maybe you think you're the most superior pilot in the world it's like you need to humble yourself and realize that that is not a thing and that the other guy sitting next to you has probably five thousand more hours than you it's like just because you had six good landings in a row and the captain had one doesn't mean you're the the almighty powerful pilot you know it's like give it a break (laughs) well and then the problem for us because i lord knows i would have been a different first officer uh now that having been a captain and i've seen so many first officers it's like uh, all right, if I were to go back to being a first officer, I think I would in some ways be a very different first officer than I was. But the problem is like as a captain, you don't get you don't get to see a lot of other captains at work. As mm-hmm. a first officer, you don't get to see a lot of other first officers at work. So right. how how do you to maintain that self-awareness and you know one of the great stories I, I love to tell in the in my keynotes I, I t- uh, there was a first officer I was flying with one day and he came back for the pre-flight briefing. Now the pre-flight briefing, generally we're doing this in first class, uh, flight attendants are sitting there, we're going over the flight time and the weather and all of these types of elements. And it's not terribly usual for um, the first officer to come back and join that chat. Um, so we get back in the cockpit and I say to this, this pilot, I said, hey, thanks for coming back. I love to put faces with names. I, I, I really appreciate you doing it. I said, 
I love the pre-flight briefing. <laughs> and I said, you love the pre-flight briefing? Like, what am I missing here? What, what do you <laughs> possibly love about the pre-flight briefing? He said, well, in fairness, what I really like is the first five seconds after the captain finishes and he turns around and starts to walk away. He said, I like to look at the flight attendants and see if they're rolling their eyes, <laughs> if they're not in. And it, I don't think he even realized that he was doing it, but he made an incredibly powerful point to me, yeah. which is that it's really hard as a leader to get good feedback. Because if, if you're not cognizant, the people, because of your positional authority, that they're going to sit there and they're going to tell you one thing or another. Um, if, if you don't, if you're not aware of that, that is a huge blind spot for you as a leader. And so to get good inf information, like to set a positive tone, to set a tone where it's open and transparency is valued. And those are things that you as the leader will dictate one way or the other, good, bad, or indifferent. But you can, by taking certain actions, I believe you can you can help to influence the Absolutely. way that you are perceived and, and how that team building goes. But. Absolutely. Self-awareness <laughs> goes a long way. And uh, it's, I mean, one, all right, well, our job is very kind of demanding at some points and it can be fatiguing. So it is hard to be on your A game at all times, but I think everyone understands that. And, but it, it's a, a counterpoint is it's very easy to get a bad reputation. All it takes is one mistake and they don't care if you're tired, if you're having a bad day or whatever. It's like you kind of got to be on your A game at all times, you know, before that reputation or those eyes start rolling. So it's kind of funny that he said that. Absolutely. Yeah. And as, I mean, you could be the best pilot in the in the world, and every time that you take off, you've got to bring that plane down safely. There's going to be uh, there's going to be millions of people that are, uh, across the country that are going to be second guessing every single decision that you made. Yeah. And that is just part of the nature uh, the nature of this job is that it, it, you can't you can't forget that you're under the microscope. But then on the same the same thing, like if you can't let that overwhelm you either, you just got to do your best. But um, I don't know. That's it's it's <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It's it's a tough position to put in, but that's the position you're in, and you got to do the best with it. And the, and the, your passengers don't care if you're the youngest captain or if you're a captain that's nearing retirement. Like they expect the same. The company expects the same. Yep. Um, your colleagues expect the same. It's a lot. It's a lot to put on, especially I think about pilots that are up uh, upgrading to captain at a regional level or something in your early twenties and. Um, that's a lot of responsibility and, and sometimes maybe we take it a little too lightly. Um, but there's, there's a huge amount of responsibility being put in and trust from your yeah. passengers that get on board that airplane. Yep, for sure. There's a lot of trust, not only the passengers, but their loved ones, you know, it's like, yeah. there's a lot of trust to everyone. The airline can't work without trust. What, uh, so you're talking about the, you were told to start a journal when, when you became a captain, when you were first told that, did you kind of like laugh it off? Be like, Haha, yeah, I'll start a journal. Okay. Or would you take it pretty serious? Like, no, I'm going to start a journal and write a book. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I thought, well, you know, worst case, it would probably be an interesting year to document. You know, now I look back and I think, oh, I, I would have journaled so much differently yeah. because I would, I would have things where I'd say, oh, I, you know, I had this conversation with so-and-so. But then I didn't get into the specifics of like what that. So now you know you have your memory and what what you're rec uh, recollecting and or you know oh this spectacular sunrise. Yeah. Well, what did it really look like? Like that's the hard part as a writer, especially in recreating these events, is is staying factual. And uh, you know I would go back and I actually had conversations with a number 
the people that I feature in the book to make sure, like, especially one guy in particular that plays a fairly central role, um, that I wanted to make sure I got the stories right. Uh, I would review like my pictures that I took and all of this, but then to make it vivid, to make it feel real, like to bring all of the senses together, the sights, the sounds, the smells, all of that is what really makes words pop off of page. Um, that it was now I keep a journal and I actually keep a handwritten journal now, oh, nice. um, which that came about cause I was inside of parentheses. I was, uh, I read my grandfather's journal from 1943 when he was a pipe fitter on, um, out in, uh, Washington state repairing ships that were damaged in Pearl Harbor, oh, which, whoa. and I just, it was amazing. It was amazing little journal. Um, but he did the same thing in his journal that frustrated me so much. Like he'd say, you know, read for a while and uh, then turned in. Well, what did you read? I want to know. Like, what was, uh, that would be cool now as your grandson to be able to visit some of that stuff. But you could just picture him sitting on like a, on his bed with, uh, with his pen or pencil and just writing these things out. And I don't know if you, if you've never done a journal, you, you, I highly encourage you and your, and your listeners to, to do them. You, you won't be disappointed. It's a, it's well worth the time and I'll the investment. Give it a shot. I've tried it every once in a while, but I'm just, I'm not a very descriptive writer. Like you're talking about, I'd be like, Oh, sky's blue this morning. Uh, see if it is tomorrow. <laughs> we'll see <Right>. you later. <laughs> but maybe after a year, you're a but little yeah, bit better. It's true. And so it's only for you. So it's you, true. You works for you yeah, until someone hacks my computer and publishes it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so you did write the book three feet to the left and it is kind of like the, the talk about going from the right seat to the left seat. And you're told you're going to have a lot of interesting stories come up. What were kind of a, I don't know if you have two stories from your book that really kind of stick out to you that you kind of love to tell. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I think there, there are two that, that really come to mind. And the first the first from a flying perspective is that really I think dives into a lot of the decision making and such that we have to deal with is there's a, a gusty, windy a landing after a blizzard in Chicago. Um, and, you know, Chicago has long-ish runways for the most part. They have some very long ones, but they also have some that are not terribly, terribly long. Right. And, and the long the winds, runs are usually used for landing or for uh, takeoff more than landing, takeoffs, right? Yeah, yeah, so. Exactly. <laughs> So it was, we're coming in and the, it was a direct crosswind just a few knots away from the uh, demonstrated crosswind limits of the 737. Oh, I love these and stories. <laughs> so, you know, we're juking and jiving all the yeah. way down, uh, down the glide slope. And you, you get to a point, you know, I, uh, where we get to towards the landing. Um, and, you know, we, I land successfully, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we land successfully. And then after I get off the runway and I'm, I'm juiced with adrenaline, right? I still remember my legs kind of shaking, quivering <laughs> as we, uh, I'm trying to stop uh, to let some traffic go by. And it dawns on me, and you'll appreciate this as a, as a quarterback, because um, it makes me think like so much of what we, we are professionals as professional pilots, we are paid to get from A to B. But so we have to walk up to the line, but there's a line that you can't cross. And judging that line, which is a moving target from second to second, can be really difficult. And in the book, I like to talk about that. I say, who's the better quarterback? The one that feels the pressure coming and throws the ball away uh, to play another down? Or the one that throws the Hail Mary and has it uh, pulled in 
and wins the game. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's one of the hard, like just yesterday we were, we flew down to, um, San Jose, Costa Rica, you know, three hours of the flight, totally uneventful, totally uneventful. We we, we would watch the weather. There was storms that had moved off, uh, were, were, were slightly off and were supposed to be moving further away from the airport while they decided to hang out. And at the last minute, they swapped the airport around <laughs> and uh, now we're looking at this arrival. And so we load the arrival, the new arrival and which is in San Jose, we very seldom if ever land uh, to the West, which was the case uh, in the yesterday. And you're going through this weather and you, now you have this thunderstorm that's sitting off the end. Um, you're, you're trying to pick your way through to, to get to where you need to, to set up for this approach, but you've got the mountains and you've got all of these other elements, um, that are constantly complicating and and combining, uh, into the, all these different threats that you as the captain are supposed to manage. And you're trying to leave yourself a, a way out. You're making sure that you're trying to get your people to A to B, but you're also thinking, all right, what, what am I going to do next? Like walking that line, it is a challenge. I mean, every time I get in the jet, it's a challenge, and yeah. it's a, I'm sure it's a challenge for any any uh, pilot, not just captains, but pilots in general. Are how far is pushing too far? How far is pushing enough? And how do you how do you walk that balance? No, it's tough because I mean, and true, like you don't. Some people believe in their superior skill. You know, some people think that they can do it. They can fly anything and anywhere. Just give them a chance. And it's one of those old things that my flight instructor told me. I think it's a popular quote. Um, maybe he just told me, but it's like a good pilot is someone who uses his superior kind of knowledge and self awareness to keep himself out of a situation to use a superior skill. And I just think that's so true. And that, like you said, it's very hard to to walk that line because. Nah, not nine, maybe like 90% of the people don't really f- come into contact with a, a position where they put them, well, they crossed that line, you know, where they went too far. So it's one of those things where you don't know how far is too far sometimes because it's always worked. Or you've heard or stories sadly, about, yeah. Sadly, the people that cross that line, we may not have the chance to interview them. Exactly. And to get that perspective. So it's, it's aviation is incredibly unforgiving. Very in unforgiving. That, and it can happen very fast too, or it can happen before you guys took off or you made one bad mistake and it follows you the whole way. And then it kind of just starts building on itself. So it's, it's definitely wild. Uh, to go back to your original question though, the second scene in the book that a lot of people have commented to me about has to do with, um, there was a late arriving uh, passenger to the plane and it's a late night flight and he's run from all the way from customs and he gets, <laughs> Gets over there. He's a first class passenger, and it's uh, we welcome him. I'm up in the in the uh, boarding area um, where I see him, and then by the time that I walk down, uh, leave that podium, walk down into the jet, I hear that there's a dis- disagreement between the flight attendant, uh, flight attendants, and this particular passenger about his bag and whether there's space for this bag. And um, so I go through this this story. Um, and I recreate like how I'm sitting there trying to think, how do I, how do I, you know, show the flight attendants that I'm, you know, respecting them and, and being a good teammate for them. How do I show this passenger that I'm, I'm a cognizant of, you know, that he wants his bag on board. And, mm-hmm. and there's, uh, there's a way as the story kind of plays out, I start to realize that some of the concerns that the flight attendants had were not the concerns that I was 
thinking about at all and like the symbolic action of the way that I conducted that event uh, and how that ultimately not just affected the flight attendants, but uh, perhaps a lot of other passengers who may have seen that situation and was I picking favorites or not. Um, Again, consequences combined. Like if you as a leader are not thinking about the fact that what you're doing has all of these repercussions, like that, that is a major problem. Um, Absolutely. People always like uh, they they seem to think that that is eye opening from because they a lot of passengers have been there right we've all had to have our bags checked we all want our bags to get on and um or or many of us have uh, and so to see it from the pilot's perspective and then to kind of see me realize that I could have done things perhaps a little bit differently um <laughs> but at that time you're like all right the plane's already late we waited for this one guy it's like just put the bag wherever it can fit and let's go <laughs> let's go get on the way it's like who cares right. pick your battles <laughs> exactly. but you're right there is a kind of uh there's other consequences to that as well but i mean some you, you got to pick your battles i don't i don't know the, the, all the situations but maybe that wasn't something that should have been picked who knows but yeah it's definitely true so, but that's a lot of what the book is. Uh, it, it's not just a flying book. It's in, some people have said to me, like, this really is more of a leadership book than than anything. Um, and and that's I tend cool. to tend to uh, agree with them on that. That means you did something right. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, right. People keep telling you it was good, so that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, I've gotten. I, I love getting these emails from pilots. Uh, like, I've gotten feedback from Cathay Pacific and Cargo oh, cool. Lux and uh, Delta and Comair and or not come air, um, compass. And, and they all kind of echo the same thing. They're like different airplane, different region of the world, same experience, Yeah, which I think is really cool. Well, it's cool because I always tell people that like, <laughs> as you keep moving up in the aviation industry, it's like, you're going to get the same crap at every single airline. And the only thing that's different is you're going to fly bigger planes and you're going to get paid a lot more. It's like all the things that you don't like in aviation are still going to follow you all the way up. It's like, just cause you get the bigger plane and the more pay that doesn't change everything else, you know? So it's funny. I how. still didn't get the schedule that I wanted. Exactly. Next month, so. Yeah. So <laughs> everything's still going to follow you. It's just, <laughs> you're doing bigger planes, more money and sometimes more money, bigger planes, it was more problems. So. Right. Go. Just think how many passenger issues you can have if you're carrying 300 people. Oh yeah, jeez, <laughs> it's freaking me out just thinking about it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Is there anything else you want to say about your book, real quick? Or because uh, I was going to move on to the rapid fire section, if you're ready for it. Yeah, I just uh, I appreciate people giving it a, giving it a look, and if you if you do pick it up, it's available on Amazon. Uh, and you if you like the book, my bad joke is leave a review. Uh, if you don't like the book, don't leave a review. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to start saying that. One time I did say, I think I said, whether it's five stars or one star, please leave me a review. And someone just left a one star because he said, you told me to. <laughs> I was oh, like, Fair enough. Brutal. I'm not saying that anymore. <laughs> I was like, dang it. <laughs> All right. But I, yeah. guess, I guess one, one other thing, if you, if you don't mind, uh, I know you oftentimes are asking for advice to young people and uh, who are trying to get into this career. And uh, when I was thinking about that question, I think that my advice would be to number one, plot your course carefully, like go to the people who, uh, who know the industry and your podcast is phenomenal for this. Like there's so many opportunities, so many different stories that you can hear of ways to go about doing things like that. So just be very disciplined, uh, about plotting your course carefully. Um, and then number two, execute with excellence. Like people want you to succeed in this business. You're, but, but you've got to do, you've got to take the effort. So you've got to be disciplined. You've got to be strategic. 
And you've got to remember, as I've said a number of times today, that consequences will combine. So uh, in college at Embry-Riddle, like, you know, you think about partying and, and I was always in the back of my head, I was thinking, uh, if I get, if I do this, there, this could, is this one night really worth throwing this entire career away? Um, exactly and it's right. just, it's just not. So, and then number three is embrace diversions. Um, because while seniority matters and I'm very guilty of, of being a climber that who really wanted to get here as fast as I could, you know, I probably missed out on some really neat life experiences too. Uh, you know, you and I were talking about, uh, Josh Maddox, a seaplane pilot that you featured uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was. And, um, you know, those experiences are maybe being uh, up in Alaska or, uh, I flew with a first officer, um, who flew the Pilatus nice. and he flew it in India. Oh, whoa. Uh, and he flew the Dalai Lama one day, he showed no up way. and the Dalai Lama gets on a, on his plane. And like there so, are ex- amazing experiences that you can have in aviation. And yeah. the best part is they all make for great interview stories down the road too. <laughs> so once you fly something cool, hit me up so we can talk about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, it's true. It's uh, there's so many cool things and, you know, it's interesting kind of how do you play your career, you know, when you're looking at it. It's like, am I am I glad that I went aerial survey to build freight and then went to freight and then went to where I am today? Or do I wish I just would have become like a major airline pilot and got on as quick as possible? But I think you can't go wrong in how you build your career. It's like you said, it's like one person can get somewhere quicker, but you might be able to get to the same company and have a very similar lifestyle, but still have all these life experiences to talk about when you guys are flying with each other, you know? So it's like, don't get your path is your path. Yeah. Don't get too caught up in the fact that I might be taking you a little longer because I mean, aviation can be unfair. Some people know people, some people are just in the right place at the right time. And it's just, it's just how it is. It's unfortunate. And it, it is fortunate when you're the one that it pays off for. So, I mean, there's really not much to do other than just enjoy your ride. Exactly. Which is hard. <laughs> well, like I said, I have a rapid fire I have a rapid fire section for you and it's just going to be some quick aviation themed questions. And you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. What is your favorite airplane you've ever flown? Oh, hands down the 757. Least favorite airplane you've ever flown. Least favorite. Um, man, I've been pretty fortunate. I'm trying to think maybe like, uh, I'm not a big, Piper fan. There you go. Uh, like the like, uh, the arrows and things. Yeah. Like, I don't know. All right, we'll count um, that. <laughs> I, I was gonna be. I was gonna say, what do you like, Cessna or Piper better? But I guess you answer that question. <laughs> what is your favorite airline livery? Ooh, favorite airline livery. And if it's United's, then you can't say it. You got to say something else. Yeah. Um. You know, I like some of the retro ones that are that are pretty simple. Uh, even like the British Airways has. Uh, I've always thought that theirs was their their livery in general. I've always thought was pretty clean. Yeah, but they they have that uh, the British Overseas Air uh, the Boeing company. One. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty. That looked pretty cool. Yeah, they have a they have a seven forty seven that comes into Chicago, I believe, and I've seen it a couple times. I was, or I've seen it one time, and it was pretty cool to see. For sure. Let's see. What is your favorite airport you've ever landed at? Um, I love mountain airports. So like Jackson Hole, Wyoming oh or gosh, Jackson, Wyoming would be way up there. Yeah. 
there or like Eagle County, Colorado. Yeah, those are good ones. Yeah, I've gone to some with the company that I fly for. We fly to the most random mountain airports and they're challenging, but they're they're pretty cool. Once you get on the ground, you're like, oh my gosh, it's so pretty here. Now, then again, you go to like LaGuardia, uh, you can't beat a night arrival doing the up the Hudson River at 4,000 feet or so looking down at New York City. I mean, that's it's incredible. Yeah, that is the truth. You, it, every airport can offer its own pluses and minuses. And New York, for all of it, can be bad. There's also good parts of it as well. <laughs> what is your, let's see, you are making a connecting flight and you are near, you're in the airport. You just got done with a quick trip and now you're going to be going off again in an hour. So what's kind of your go-to airport food? Um, well, if there's a pot belly a sandwich shop. I am a sucker for pot bellies. Love okay. it. Pot bellies is good. I've had pot bellies since I was in college, making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you found dinner tonight. Yeah, I know, right? What's your favorite approach? I guess you just said, look, other than LaGuardia, what would be your favorite approach? Um, you know, one that I always enjoy is is uh, descending into Portland, Oregon, and there's the Hood Arrival that goes right by Mount Hood. And so you just get this up close and personal view of uh, Mount Hood and um, the, um, oh, what do they call The Columbia River Gorge. And yeah. If you, very- if you can tell, I'm a mountain guy. I like mountains <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's a, you need to move out of Pennsylvania then. <laughs> right. Well, you have some. They're like little hills. Some but, rolling hills. Yeah. 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 It's uh Portland and the whole Northwest. I've never flown there until I got the company I'm with now. And just the first time I flew, I think it was from Van Nuys to Boeing Field. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I need to move That's here ASAP. So it's a nice clear day, no smoke, no anything. You can see so much and the volcanoes are so pretty and so yep. massive. Mount Rainier is massive and you can't really even talk about it until you go there and see it. And it's just how big it is. It's crazy. Yep, incredible. Yeah. Same thing like going into Alaska, so, you know, the, the northern side of that chain. And you see, you see them with the um, the glaciers and everything. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. On, a, on its worst day, you get in the airplane, you go flying in aviation, you're going to see something spectacular. Yeah. Just every single day. <laughs> that is for true. What is your least favorite airport to land at? Uh, LaGuardia. <laughs> Both favorite approach and least favorite airport. I like it. Why? It's just because it's kind of a hot it's mess. It's a mess. So, yeah. It is a mess. It's, it's always, always a mess. mess. I always like to tell people that they're finally going to finish it whenever, or once they finish it, they're going to start all the way over and start redoing it again. So it's never going to stop. Probably so. Yeah. <laughs> I caught some flack from uh, another guy I interviewed. He said that LaGuardia is just meant for like only the strong survive and LaGuardia is just meant for, <laughs> for tough people. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not a tough person. <laughs> we don't fly there very often in my company. We go to more Teterboro and kind of Morristown and all the outlier airports. But we do go to LaGuardia, JFK, and Newark if need be. Yeah, I don't I don't mind. Like I've, I really have never been. I think I've flown as a passenger once to Kennedy and that's it. Uh, I don't mind Newark as much. Newark has such a bad reputation, but I actually think it's pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, I would rather fly out of Newark than a lot of the other airports in the surrounding area. Absolutely. Let's see. What else do I have? Um, what is one thing you always want to have on you when you're flying? Could be like sunglasses, four flight. I know you don't really have four flight in uh, an airline, but or a watch or whatever. Yeah, I would say um, th- my A&R headset uh, would be one. Because the seven three is 
rather loud. Um, and having the headset makes it just so much nicer. And then, uh, the, I think your sunglasses, uh, you mentioned sunglasses, like yeah. the times that I have forgotten my sunglasses at home, those trips are miserable. <laughs> it's like declaring an emergency. We can't do yeah. it. We can't land. <laughs> <laughs> and inevitably you're going to be landing directly into the sun at some point in time. Yeah. It's going to be the nicest day and the sun's going to be right in your face. <laughs> and it's gonna be like this. Are you serious? I haven't seen the sun in so long. <laughs> well, perfect. Those are all the questions I have as of right now at the top of my head. And uh, you answered my question already about what would you say to, to someone for the advice? So we already did that as well. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, it's just so cool to hear the story you have and to, to hear kind of just your outlook on being a captain and just the book that you wrote. And I look forward to people reading my followers and listeners reading your book and tell me what they think about it. And I look forward to reading it myself and keep on doing it, man. Keep on writing, keep on producing, keep on creating content. I love seeing other aviators, other pilots creating some content. So kudos to you, man. Absolutely. And thank you so much. This is, this has been a lot of fun. Good. I'm really glad. I've had a lot it. of fun too. We'll have to do it again sometime. You could be my I resident United uh, podcast pilot. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But we can debrief a little bit once we get off, but I appreciate you, man. And thanks. Thank you. Aviation. That is a wrap of episode number 67 of the pilot, the pilot podcast. Like I said earlier, if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Patreon. Find us on Instagram at pilot the pilot. I look forward to seeing each and every one of the aviation at Oshkosh. If you see me, please come up and say hi. I would love to talk with you guys and girls and just talk about what you like about the podcast or just talk about aviation. So it should be a fun time. I should be there for three, maybe four days, but the meetup will be July 26th at noon at booth C3150. Don't forget free stickers and there will be a rapid fire section for everyone as long as I have recording space available. In Aviation, that is a wrap, and I want to say have a good day, and as always, happy flying.